Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Um, just I mentioned in the first service as Jesse came up and talked about uh, her trip to Poland. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me uh, three years ago when we when I got to go out to Poland um, and I haven't had a chance to talk to Jesse about this, uh, but we were in a city that was probably the size of Bakersfield, if not a little bit bigger, and they had one evangelical Protestant church in the whole entire city that was smaller than our church. And um, it it hit me uh, as I was out there, as I was watching this youth group, these leaders of this youth group work together, there was conflict between the youth, and they had to work it out. There was nowhere else for them to go. It it was the only church. And um, a lot of the New Testament churches were like that, that we we see in the New Testament. Um, And I want to talk about actually hurt today. Um, It's a scripture that we're on, so if you could turn with me to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 43. And it says, starting in verse 43, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And, he, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who, um, who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you um, in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you. uh, I thank you for setting the example. I thank you for loving those that hurt you. For patiently teaching those that didn't understand you. That protecting those that, that didn't know your true mission. God, I pray as we go through this passage this morning that we look at you as our model of how to obey, and how to love. I thank you, Lord, for loving us when we didn't love you. And loving us to the point that you were willing to come, share in the experience of suffering and hurt, and taking it as far as to die for us. So let, us let that motivate us this morning as we go through this, this scripture. Amen. Last week, we uh, saw Jesus in Gethsemane. Um, We saw Jesus at this point where he was surprised by terror. He had a foretaste of the cup, which we learned last week that that's the cup of God's wrath. We saw that one taste of this cup had Jesus stagger. Jesus fall to his knees. 
sweat blood, and just the thought of, of the cup almost killed him. And we learned last week that we, we just don't know how scary God's wrath is. We don't really truly understand just what God or what Jesus did for us, what he saved us from. Um, and I hope through it, as we looked at, at God's wrath last week, I hope the message that we saw was just how much Jesus loves us. What he went through to save us and, and how much he loved his disciples. And through it all, we saw the disciples slept. They were supposed to be there for Jesus, but instead, Jesus, Jesus was concerned for them. As I was studying these last two weeks for these passages that we've been going over, I read a, a pastor talking about Gethsemane, and he said this, One tragedy must not be overlooked. Throughout his ministry, Jesus provided for the needs, guidance, and teachings of his disciples. At Gethsemane, we see, perhaps for the first time, an occasion when Jesus needed his disciples. How encouraging it would have been as he faced the cross to know that his followers, his close friends, had shared in his agony with him. How meaningful would it have been for Jesus as he went through his suffering to have remembered that Peter, James, and John had shared in his sorrow and had passionately prayed on his behalf. But they all failed him, for he came and found them sleeping. Earlier, the disciples failed to understand his teachings concerning his death. Now, when he sought their assistance... During this, time, this crucial hour, they failed him again. The disciples were already beginning to forsake him. Today, we're going to look at the disciples forsaking Jesus. Last week, I believe, we, we looked at Jesus' weakest moment in his humanity. This week, we're going to see Jesus in his strength. We're going to see Jesus in his poise his, his determination, his unwavering courage. And we're going to see him in his power. And we're really going to see him in his strength, and particularly in his, in his relationships. There's three points I want to go over today. Jesus' strength in haunting hurt. Jesus' strength in patient partnership. And Jesus' strength and compassionate courage. Starting with haunting hurt. Jesus' strength in haunting hurt. In the context of this, of this passage, just so we know, we're in Gethsemane. He's with his disciples. It's nighttime. He's praying. And verse 43 says, And immediately, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Judas is the only disciple that, that has this title of one of the twelve. It's really the author's way of showing disbelief. That, that a man that has spent three years with Jesus, Judas, an eyewitness of his miracles, his compassion, his love, his knowledge, his authority, 
earlier, just a few hours earlier, Jesus was washing Judas's feet. And now Judas is betraying him. I believe the, the gospel writers saw this as unbelievable. And I also believe the gospel writers uh, knew, who knew Judas had a, had a love for Judas. We, we don't really see the gospel writers talking bad about Judas. They, they just are honest. Honest. And there's a feeling of disbelief and sorrow. And I want to explore two questions today. What exactly did Judas do? And why did he do it? We'll start with the easier one. What? Well, betrayed Jesus, but how? We get an insight from Mark 14, 1 through 2. And print, or Pastor Brent um, preached on this a few weeks ago. It says this in, in, in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unle- unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. We really learn two things from this passage. One, uh, the, the chief, chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees were seeking to arrest Jesus and kill him. And two, they wanted to do this by stealth because they were afraid of an uproar. They're afraid of, the, of a riot. They're afraid of the people. Some context of this passage. Uh, this is uh, in Jerusalem. The so last week, it, it, there's thousands upon thousands of Jews that are in Jerusalem right now for the Passover week. They've traveled to Jerusalem. And we saw uh, a while ago Jesus entering into Jerusalem and thousands of people praising him, shouting, Son of David which just means king or Lord, and Hosanna, which means save us. Yet we have learned, and we spent a couple weeks talking about all these people, disciples, having false expectations of who the Messiah was. When they said king, they were saying geopolitical king, an earthly king. When they said save us, they were saying save us from the Romans. They're they're expecting a warrior Messiah. But the Pharisees wanted to arrest Jesus. They were scared, and they wanted to do it at night because of the people. And Judas had this information where Jesus was going to be at night. So that's what Judas did. He gave the, the, the leaders of the Jews information of where Jesus was going to be that night. But why? Why would he do this? How do you spend three years with Jesus, the Son of God, and betray him for 30 pieces of silver? And this is unthinkable. And I think the answer is, Judas had a love for the world. I think out of all the disciples, Judas got it. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Judas, at some point in his heart, said, he really expects us to die for him. You're not going to be a geopolitical. You're not going to be this earthly king. I'm not going to be rich and powerful following you. I really don't think Judas betrayed Jesus just for money. 
I have two reasons why not. First of all, 30 pieces of silver was not much money. It was the price of a, of a slave. The second reason is Judas was already making money off Jesus. It says in John six twelve, Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus, or Judas was making money off Jesus. The reason why he betrayed him was the cost of discipleship was just too high. Judas loved the world too much. And you know what? I think the other disciples were not that far behind him. They were starting to figure it out. Luke gives an interesting insight about Gethsemane, about Peter, James, and John. In Luke 22, verse 45, it says this, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They were starting to get it, and they were full of sorrow. I think there was this internal battle going on in the disciples' hearts. A love for Jesus versus a love for the world. Do I love Jesus more than this world? It's easy for, for almost anyone to say yes when things are going good. And when it was going good for the disciples, it was easy to follow Jesus. But what about when things are hard? When it really costs something? Look at verse 43 again. And immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, from the scribes, and the elders. A crowd with swords and clubs. Who is this crowd, and how big was this crowd? Uh, we learn in verse 43, what we just read, that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were in this crowd. John adds the Pharisees. These people had limited policing of, uh, powers. The Rome's given them that to arrest people. But it seems like they didn't want to be solely blamed for their arrest. Or maybe they're afraid of Jesus because they asked Rome for help. We learn in John 18.3 that a cohort of Roman soldiers were with them. A cohort is 600 soldiers. This is probably a part of a cohort. It could have been close to a thousand men. My guess is it was probably a couple hundred. Either way, this was a large group. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Why did they need a sign? Well, it's dark. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have street lights or anything. They had lanterns and, and torches. It's dark, and there's this huge crowd. And Jesus has slipped away before. So the kiss was to identify Jesus. Judas knew who Jesus was better than any of them. The Greek word for kiss is, is intensified, meaning this was a long kiss or, or, or many kisses. This was to ensure identification. 
But kissing culturally was a, was a sign of close friendship. Let me read what a commentator wrote about, about kiss, a kiss. Because of his lowly position, a slave would kiss the feet of his master or, no, or other no, notable person, as would an enemy kissing mer, or seeking mercy from a monarch. Ordinary servants would perhaps kiss the back of the hand or the one they greeted, or of the one they greeted, and those above the level of a servant would sometimes kiss the palm of the hand. To kiss the hem of a person's garment was a sign of reverence and devotion, but an embrace and a kiss on the cheek was a sign of close affection and love, reserved only for those with whom one had a close, intimate, loving relationship. Therefore, the betrayal and hurt Jesus must have felt was incredible. And this is where we see Jesus' strength. He doesn't stop it. He could, have, he could have stopped it. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells Peter, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, I could stop this. I could destroy this mob. But hurt is not going to stop me from obeying. Hurt is not going to stop me from loving sacrificially. I will love those that hurt me. And we see Jesus' strength in haunting hurt. And this is our model. Selfless love. Saying, even though you hurt me, I will still love you. We also see Jesus' strength in patient partnership. In patient partnership. Look at verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But one of those who stood by. Any guesses who this is? Of course. That's no surprise it's Peter. But here's my question. Where did Peter get such courage? Right? I mean, in just a few hours, he's going to be scared of a servant girl. This is the Roman army. Well, John adds something that Mark doesn't. And I've learned as I was studying, um, they say that the Synoptic Gospels didn't add Peter's name and what exactly happened because they were afraid for Peter's life. That John wrote it later on being the last gospel written because Peter was probably already dead by then. But John adds some details that we don't have in in Mark. And and John 18, why don't you guys turn there? I want you to see this. John 18, starting in verse 3. John 18, verse 3, says this. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now keep in mind, this is a couple hundred people. This is a big group. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, I just want to pause for a second. As I was studying for this passage and I was going over my notes this morning, 
that phrase just jumped out at me. Knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. That phrase, I am he, is interesting. The Greek words are ego e me. Ego e me. Ego is where we get ego from. I. A me is I am. This can mean I am. It's not translated I am in most of your guys' translation because it, it can mean just be a self-identifier. Uh, uh, in John 9, 9, people were searching out looking for this blind man, and the blind man says, I am he. The same words, ego e me. So it can't just be a, a self-identifier. But I want to look at how John records Jesus' use of ego e me. In John 6, don't turn there, just listen as I go through these. John six eighteen through 20, when they, this being the disciples, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. Ego e me. It could mean I am he. John 13, 19, Jesus was talking to his disciples and said this, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that, ego a me, I am. Could mean I am he. John 8, 20, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, 20, 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that a go a me. Then you will know that I am. Or I am he. John 6, 51. A go a me, the living bread. I am the living bread. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. John 8, 23. I am from above. John 10, 9. I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the, tru- the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. And the most famous, John 8, 58, I say to you, before Abraham was, a go, a me, I am. Most of these point to Exodus 3.13, where God says to Moses, I am. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament in Hebrew, of course, in this time period they had a Greek translation. This is the translation that Jesus, is, Jesus quotes from. Exodus 3.13, God said to Moses, Ego a me. I am who I am. What's this have to do with Jesus' arrest? Look at John 18.6 again. Or John 18.6. When Jesus said to them, Ego e me, I am. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is a couple hundred people. Roman soldiers. 
as I was reading through this, there's plenty of people that say, well, Jesus must have startled them, and as they took a step back, they all fell over. Really? Come on. This is a display of power. The powerful words. John 18, 7 says, So he asked them again, I'm guessing while they're on the ground or as they're starting to get up, and he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. This is why Peter had so much courage. To him, it was finally starting. Jesus was finally going on attack. We're going to take down the Romans. This is the warrior Messiah that, that they were, the disciples were hoping for. Yet Peter should have known better. Jesus told them what was going to happen with details. Don't turn there, but Mark 10, verse uh, 32, just listen. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, listen, see, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they are going to condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let me just reread some of those for you. Going up to Jerusalem, delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Deliver him over to the Gentiles, which would be the Romans. Mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Peter, you got it? No, Peter wants to start a revolution. He doesn't get it. And he didn't get it all the way up to this point. A couple of side notes about this. Uh, the first one, Peter was not all that create, uh, courageous. Think about all the people that were in this crowd. You got the temple priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, Roman soldiers. Who did Peter attack? John, John tells us Malchus, who is a slave. He's not a good aim either. Going for the head or the neck, he cuts off the ear. Second note, Jesus rarely uses his power in an aggressive way. It's always to heal, always, always to save, always to help. Really only two times we see Jesus using his power in an aggressive way. First with a fig tree. He curses it and it withers. This was a symbol of Israel, we learned. Second, and I believe there was some kind of power in this, even though a miracle wasn't recorded, Jesus going into the temple and throwing everyone out. That's the heart of Israel. So why did Jesus use such power on this night? I think two reasons. First, to show that God was in complete control. John 10, 18 says, No one takes it, this is Jesus talking about his life, no one takes my life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. 
He was a victim, but not helpless. And the Bible couldn't be more clear about this. Jesus chose the cross. He could have stopped it at any moment. But I think the bigger reason why he showed this power that night was to protect his disciples, to protect his friends. Look at John chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus is saying, I am the man. I am, I am he. Arrest me. Leave them alone. So what happened to Peter later? The question we need to answer. How did he go from chopping off people's ears to denying Jesus three times? Well, as I was studying this, and I read a commentary that just, a commentator that just hit it right on the, right on the head, and I want, I want to read what he put. It had finally sunk in for him. He's talking about when, when he's seeing Jesus accused later on after the arrest. It had finally sunk in um, for him. When Peter was watching Jesus being accused after Jesus had been arrested, Peter figured it out. Jesus was really going to die. He really wasn't going to fight back. He really was going to be crucified. Just as he said, he had really meant all that stuff about being arrested and killed. There would be no revolution, no earthly glory, no great victory. Peter truly loved Jesus. But you, would get a, you, but you get a sense that around the fire, when Jesus was being accused, he was just profoundly disappointed. He wanted something more. This wasn't what he had signed up for. So he saved his own skin by abandoning Jesus. Honestly, Peter was not that much different than Judas. Both had unspoken expectations. Jesus is going to be this king, this geopolitical earthly king, a warrior messiah. He's going to overthrow the Romans. We are going to be rich, powerful, and popular because of him, because we're friends with him. Both had unspoken expectations. Both turned on Jesus when times got hard. I just think Judas figured it out first. Both were in love with the world and what it had to offer. Maybe it was comfort, money. Maybe it was good things like family, friends, just living. Both were full of sorrow after they betrayed Jesus. The only difference I see is Peter repented and Judas didn't. So Jesus was patient in his partnership with the disciples. I mean, he's walking with them all this time, and they betray him, and then he goes out after his death and resurrection and gathers them again and says, let's go change the world. I'm going to use you guys to spread the gospel. I want to quickly look. Don't turn there, but just, just Mark chapter 8 is probably the most important chapter in all of Mark. It's right in the center of Mark, and it really... You have to understand this chapter to understand the, the whole book. This is where Jesus tells the disciples that he is the Messiah for the first time. 
And the very next thing he tells them is in Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And 32 says this, And he said this plainly. And Jesus wasn't known for teaching plainly. His parables were confusing. He would say stuff that would just catch you off guard, but not this. Guys, I'm going to the cross plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, you're going to be king. But turning and seeing his disciples, who my guess that is in there, seeing the disciples, is that, that they were all thinking the same thing Peter said. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, this is from Satan. You're consumed with the world. For, verse 33, it says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. From this point on, when he tells them that he's the Messiah, from this point on, he tells them time and time again, I am going to die. Patiently teaching them, and especially Mark, right after he tells them that, then they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. They don't get it. And when the disciples finally get it, when they finally get it, they desert them. They take off. Here's my, my plea for, for us, for you guys. Be patient with people. Christians are going to do and say hurtful things. They're not going to get it at times. You're going to be frustrated. Why don't you get this? But use Jesus as our model. Be patient with people. So we see Jesus' strength in haunting hurt. We see Jesus' strength in patient partnership. We also see Jesus' strength in compassionate courage. Look at verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. Jesus is exposing, exposing their hypocrisy and their cowardliness. Right? Hypocrisy, because if, if Jesus were truly a criminal, like a robber, then they would have arrested him during the daytime. They wouldn't hide. And cowardliness, because they were afraid of the people. They had no conviction. This wasn't driven out of conviction. This was driven out of uh, uh, them wanting to save their own reputation. That's why they wanted to arrest and kill Jesus. And them wanting to save their own skin. That's why they wanted to do it at night. Yet Jesus says in verse 49, But let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is all part of God's plan. Jesus even tells Peter in John 18, 11, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup of God's wrath? It's God's will that I drink the cup. And Peter, if I don't drink it, you will. Out of love for God, he was obedient. Out of love for others, he was self-sacrificial. And that's our model. 
That's our model. That's who we're aiming to be like. Love of God, love of others. So we see Jesus' strength in haunting hurt, in patient partnership, and in compassionate courage. Verse 50, And they all left him and fled. The disciples failed Jesus. And you know what? Just like the disciples, at some point, someone is going to fail you. Someone is going to cause you hurt. Someone is not going to get it. Someone is going to turn on you. I want you guys to keep this in mind. When that happens, just think about this. At some point, you are going to fail someone. You guys are voting on me this afternoon, which is very humbling. Um, But as an associate pastor, I want to share with you, at some point, I am going to fail you. There's going to be a phone call I should have made a meeting I should have been at. Maybe I didn't see you at the market and I didn't say hi, something. There's some way I'm going to fail you. And I want you guys to to model Jesus' love. And I'll do the best I can. Here's my biggest fear for Country Oaks. And we've had this fear, I think, as pastors for a while. Our size You can come Sunday mornings here and hide. You can come and never really get intimately involved. Here's my question. How are you going to model Christ's selfless love if you never put yourself in a situation where you could get hurt? I know it's really popular to say today, And I know there's people in here that have probably said this. And don't get me wrong. I mean, the Bible, there is a reality to hurt. And Jesus came down and entered into suffering with us. The Bible doesn't, doesn't hide this. And I'm not trying to trivialize any type of hurt. But it's popular to say I was hurt by the church. That's why I don't go. That's why I don't get involved. It usually means, if you, if you talk long enough, a person in the church hurt me, or a group of people hurt me. But that shouldn't stop you from getting involved. It shouldn't stop you from getting into an intimate group. I mean, we have a small groups coming up, and there's opportunities to minister. We should be shoulder to shoulder with each other, so there is a point we do get hurt. Because hurt God uses it to sanctify us. God uses it to glorify him. Let me give you three ways God uses hurt to sanctify us. First, hurt makes you rely on Christ's strength. Hurt makes you rely on Christ's strength. One of the saddest passages in all of the New Testament is the end of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4 
Let me just read it and listen to it. And the passage, I'm just reading a part of it. The whole passage is, is just sad. And it's Paul pouring out his heart to Timothy. And I think Paul is warning Timothy, warning Timothy about the hurt that he's going to feel at some point. He says this, At my first defense, no one came to stand, came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul was abandoned. No one stood up for him. None of his friends. But then Paul says in in verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Through Paul's hurt, God was glorified. God, Paul relied on Christ's strength. Therefore, Christ's strength was highlighted. So hurt makes you rely on Christ's strength. Second, hurt gives you an opportunity to love like Christ. Hurt gives you an opportunity to love like Christ. I've always wondered, and I've kind of thought through this a lot, why aren't we just taken to heaven after salvation? I mean, you can do everything better in heaven. Worship, obey, hear God clearer, see God more fully, fellowship. I have a book in my office that's called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. It's a book on evangelism. One of the purposes God doesn't bring us to heaven is because we're supposed to glorify him through evangelizing while we're here on earth. And we get one chance at it. We're in heaven. We can't evangelize. I really want to write a book called The Two Things You Can't Do in Heaven. Evangelize and suffer. This life is your one chance to respond to hurt and suffering like Jesus. Hurt gives you an opportunity to love like Christ, to rely on his strength. And third, hurt and conflict helps root out idols. Hurt and conflict helps root out idols. This is true in in marriage especially, but in close intimate relationships at church, part of church is getting hurt and having conflicts. So you can examine your heart. James 4, 1 through 2 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes anger and fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. This this is saying, James is saying here that you want something, you desire something, and someone gets in the way of what you want and desire, so you murder. You, You get angry, you fight. You want something, and that person gets in the way, and you're angry at that person. Whenever we are angry, we should stop and ask, what did I want, and what got in the way of it? What did I want, and what got in the way of it? In marriage, it's always little things, right? But they're, they're, they're idols. 
Maybe it's a little thing what you wanted, but it's the, the idea of comfort or something that, that you, you're, you're worshiping. And that person got in wave with, and you're angry. Stop and ask, what did I want? And then stop and ask, do I love it more than God? Can I let it go? For a love of others and love of God, can I let it go? These three things only happen in close community. Don't run away from hurt by not getting involved in the church. God uses hurt. I want to end with this. I guess it's on a, a lighter note. Um, a young man flees. Look at Matthew or Mark eighteen fifty one. One thing about going verse by verse through the Bible and preaching on every passage is you can't get away from some verses. And this is one of them that I skipped in first service. We ran out of time, but you're welcome. I told Brent that he needs to preach this one, and he says it goes with your passage. Thanks. Matthew or Mark fourteen fifty one, And yes, this is in the Bible. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Why is this in here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, you know what's funny is a lot of people come up and ask me, what's your life verse? And I usually say, Mark fourteen fifty one through 52. <laughs> I, 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 kind of, I wanted to say something about this, and I started reading scholars, and they're all over the place on this. Um, let me just read, because I think it's funny. Let me read you one scholar's guess of what this is. He thinks it's Mark, that this is Mark that ran away. Most scholars think that it's Mark, uh, the author uh, of the gospel. But this is, this is what he gets from these two verses. After Jesus and his disciples left Mark's father's house after the Passover... Mark removed his outer clothes and went to bed wrapped in a linen sleeping garment. Shortly after, a servant may have woke him, or woke him with the news about Judas' betrayal. Since Judas, and, or since Judas and their arresting force had come there looking for Jesus, without stopping to dress, Mark rushed to Gethsemane, perhaps to warn Jesus, who had already been um, arrested, or arrested when Mark arrived. After all the disciples fled, Mark was, or Mark was following Jesus into the city when someone seized him, perhaps as a possible witness, but he fled from there naked, leaving his linen sleeping garment in someone's hands. Really? I don't know. You get all that from those two verses? I mean, it could have been Mark. Um, it could have shown how crazy the night was. That's why they put this in here. It could have emphasized, probably emphasizes that everyone deserted Jesus. But I think it's just, it's just cool how honest the Bible is. I mean, this is what you would expect from an eyewitness. Okay? It's something that stood out to them. Right? Information that stood out. If Mark was there, and that was Mark, well, obviously it stood out to him. <laughs> And, and so he put it in his gospel. 
if Mark wasn't there and Peter's the one that's telling Mark, and this is where Mark's getting most of his information, that's probably something that stood out to Peter that night. And as something that stood out, they put it in there as an eyewitness. The Bible's just honest, and I love that. So if you want to know what my life verse is, and maybe that'll change your boat tonight. <laughs> Mark fourteen fifty one through 52. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this church. God, you're doing amazing things in this church. Thank you for letting me be an eyewitness to some of the things that are going on, the love, the selfless love that's going on in this church, the ministry that's happening. God, this is, this is family. I thank you for that. I feel that. I thank you that you've called me to such a, a place where I feel loved and encouraged. Yet, God, we can do better. We could be a light to this community as we love each other and, and people see that and go, why do they love each other so much? Why are they so patient with each other? How, how do they get through conflict so well that we can point to you and say, only through your strength? Because hurt hurts. It does. It, it's real. There's a weight behind it. God, help us to just draw close to you. God, help us to love like you. God, help us to see if we are worshiping something other than you by bringing people in our life that, that get in the way of what we're worshiping. Bring us close to community, Lord. I pray that all the small groups that are going to start up are just filled with people that are ready to love each other, that are ready to model you. Yes, thank you for this time, Lord. I just pray you're with us as we dismiss, Lord. Amen.